You're listening to Faith Community Church's weekly podcast. We hope this week's message from God is insightful and an inspiration to you. And ladies and gentlemen, Nick Hart. <laughs> All right. Okay. Nick, come on up here. Um, for some of you who don't know, Nick is was once our youth pastor. And then God had laid it on his heart and Lindsay's heart to launch a ministry called Flow Loves You. And they have been doing this ministry for a long time. My, my daughter happens to be on staff with him in, in this ministry. And they just got back from a, a great vacation in Maui. Family and he's part trip. of our tre- teaching team. <laughs> Family trip. Family trip. A research trip. Family trip. Uh, Andy, thank you so much for wearing pants that I wore when I was in the fourth grade. <laughs> Uh, I have a photo, um, something about growing up in the Hart household, like my mom, I never had to worry about like, uh, mom's buying me clothes because my mom always bought my sister and I like really cool clothes and uh, something I always appreciated. And, uh, one of my favorite photos, those pants reminded me this morning, we're staying, my sister and I are standing in front of our Christmas tree. My sister's in this like cute outfit and I am in like, I am dripping with style in third, fourth grade. Um, and, uh, they're very similar to the pants that you're wearing right now. So, um, Andy's dripping with style as I was in the fourth grade. Um, so no, um, it is good to be here with you guys this morning. When Andy actually told me about this current series that we're, that we're in, I got really, really excited. Um, and it's not because I love Lent. I'll be completely honest. To be honest, it's my least favorite time of year, which I know that's not you know, like a most popular thing to be saying, but for starters, ADHD people are just not the most natural at just lingering, uh, especially lingering in the quiet or the stillness or the sadness of this season. Now I got excited, uh, because this was a series specifically about all the ways Jesus cried. And if there's something that Jesus and I have in common, uh, there's, besides loving people who are really hard to love, it's crying. Now, I wouldn't say that I love to cry, but I also don't hate it. I cry in all kinds of things and all kinds of times. I, like Jesus, don't discriminate uh, on times of crying and times for keeping it together. I've cried in, of course, funerals and, and weddings and birthdays and during beer commercials. Um, like two football champion, two Super Bowls. I'm a huge sports guy, by the way. Huge, big competition, throw, like concussed millionaires. Love them. They're my favorite. Love those guys. So big on sports. There was a large sports event on the television. And there was this beer commercial, and it was so brilliant. I'm like, I don't even drink beer, hence my watch. You know what time it is. Uh, and thank you, Dave. Nailed to the cross and the X. Uh, um, it was so brilliantly done, though, and I'm like, there are tears. This is literally about a horse. I don't even know what about this commercial is, but I'm moved deeply 
So I, I, I cry. I can often be found crying, listening to music in my office. I know my wife has videoed me in my most vulnerable of moments, only to send them to her friends <laughs> in some mocking. And yet Alita has received these shaky, off-key. Cassidy has seen them too. Uh, these like shaky, off-tune songs and videos. They're mocking yet loving And I don't hate those either. Mockery is a love language of mine. If you mock me, it means that you love me. So, like I said, I I was pretty stoked to have the opportunity um, to speak during this series um, on the heartbreak of Jesus. This morning, we're going to be studying a passage in Mark where we find this Jesus kind kind of losing it. Uh, And it's beautiful, and it is painful, and it hurts, and it's embarrassing, and it's all of the things. Before we do that, um, would you pray with me? God, uh, there's a shaky, nervous energy in my legs right now. And it's not because I I haven't done this in, in a minute. It's... I wholeheartedly believe it's because you have something really special and sacred for us this morning. This is a unique point in time in which we get to receive whatever gift that you would have for us. And I'm not, I'm not even pretending that this is a rehearsed prayer or that I have, like, I know what that is. I I know how we're going to land this plane and I know the gift that's going to be at the end of it. I really don't. But I truly believe that you have something for us hidden in this passage. And it may not even be something that I even intend on saying this morning, but through the power of your Holy Spirit, you're going to have individual conversations with all of us in here, and you're going to have a a communal conversation. Because that's what you do. So would you have your way? Would you do what you want to do? And would you say what you want to say? And would you show what you want to show? And if you choose to do that through me, great. And if it's through something else, God, you're the best. So would you help us respond to you in the way that you want us to respond? Because when we respond to you in the way you want us to respond, the best things happen in our lives. It doesn't mean that's not hard in our hearts, in our world. Give us the courage to stay and linger in this moment and open up our hearts, open up our minds to another dimension right now, God. And, and to be able to process in a capacity that it, 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 it is beyond us. Would you do that now? In Jesus' great name, amen. So to set the tone and the context in which we find Jesus and his disciples in this passage that we're about to read, um, we, we read before this passage in Mark about the Last Supper and them sharing communion together and Jesus giving the bread and the wine a significant upgrade and pointing them towards the new covenant. In another gospel, we read about Jesus washing his disciples' feet and them not getting it. A woman washes Jesus' feet with super expensive perfume as an offering of her gratitude towards Jesus. 
a sacrifice. And most likely, little did she know, it would be a fragrant scent that would follow Jesus to the cross. Perhaps being one of the last things that he smells. Perhaps she was the woman that we meet in John chapter 8. Where the religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus into saying something weird or off base or blasphemous. Pretty much anything that they could use against him in order to kill him. Suck the wind out of his sails, that sort of thing. You see, this is towards the very end of Jesus' ministry and his life on earth. He was very public much of his ministry career, but towards the end was more recluse. Dipping in and out of the public eye, dodging all the bullets that the leaders of religious law were trying to shoot at him. It's safe to say that after three long but good years of public ministry, let alone people trying to kill you, you're probably going to feel a little tired. If you've ever had anyone close to you, whether in proximity or personally close to you, mad at you for any length of time, you probably know a small portion of the exhaustion level that one can carry. And I wonder if Jesus carried any of that burden at all. Either way, this is where we find Jesus and his disciples leading up into this passage. And Mark so brilliantly writes in chapter 14, starting in verse 26. When they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. You'll all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if All fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Pause there for a moment. You got to put yourself in the disciples' shoes here for a moment. Because your beloved rabbi, whom you swore that you'd lay your life down for, you swear that you, you, you would. There'd be no change in your mind. Just as much as you'd follow him to the deepest and darkest places. They've already done that. They've left everything and everyone they've ever known to follow him. It's safe to say that all of these disciples were all in. Fully invested in the cause of Christ. And yet your beloved rabbi begins to call you out. You're all going to leave me. But he's not saying it in some bitter tone in his voice. And it's not this like pity party that Jesus is dishing out. It's most likely he's not even looking for his disciples to say anything. Just, just listen. Almost just like receive the weight. Sometimes you hear news, like you hear something from someone that's so big, you're just like, don't even have a response. And like, no matter what your response would be, it would be like, not enough, like almost like inappropriate. Like, it's like one of those moments, (laughs) but they can't help it. They blurt out, starting with Peter, we will never leave you, Jesus. 
And it's so easy for us as the reader to sit back and judge the disciples for not getting it. Like, like, how can you not see, dude? Like, Jesus is right there. Why on earth would you ever walk away? Like, how thick-headed have you got to be to spend years of your life actually walking with Jesus and then peace out on him in his hour of need? Dude, literally never asks for anything, and the moment that he does, it can't manage to hang. It's so easy to pass this kind of judgment. Now, I confess this morning, I am just like the disciples. One minute, it's me and Jesus. I would go to the ends of the earth for him. And the next minute, I'm looking for the easy road. My escape fantasy kicks in. I'm looking for how much I can sell my house for and move to a place that isn't as crazy as this place. A place that seems easier to follow Jesus. Mark continues in verse 32. Then they came to a place called Gethsemane. Stay here, said Jesus to the disciples, while I pray. He took Peter and James and John with him. And then he says, and became quite overcome and deeply distressed. In other words, Jesus is kind of losing it here. My soul is disturbed within me. He said right to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. He went a little further and fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the moment might pass from him. Abba father. He said, dad, please. Jesus says, All things are possible for you. Take this cup from me, but not what I want, but what you want. He returned and found them sleeping. Are you asleep, Simon? He said to Peter. Couldn't you keep watch for a single hour? Watch and pray so that you won't come into the time of trouble. The spirit is eager, but the body is weak. Once more, he went off to pray, saying the same words again. And again, when he returned, he found them asleep because their eyes were very heavy. They had no words to answer him. But the third time he came, he said to them, all right, sleep as much as you'd like now. Have a good rest. The job is done. The time has come and look, the son of man is betrayed into the clutches of sinners Verse 42, get up, let's be on our way. Here comes the man who's come to betray me. What do you do when the strong person in your life all of a sudden becomes weak? N.T. Wright poses this brilliant, brilliant question. What do we do when the strong people in our lives all of a sudden become weak? I saw a glimpse of this this past weekend when uh, a large group of my friends uh, gathered to kind of remember our friend Chris who passed but three days ago. Chris was arguably one of the most fit individuals I've ever known in my entire life. All 
always fit. Never an off season. I don't drink, but uh, my buddies do. And they were joking about how Chris had like, hey, we're going to go out drinking. We're going to go out partying. He even had this like regimen, like, hey, guys, here's the deal. We're going to be doing vodka and sodas because that's the quickest burning and like the least calorie thing. Like even in his partying, he was disciplined. Like everything that he did was like discipline and he didn't party a lot, but there would be these times where they'd get together and there'd be these special occasions and they'd celebrate and go out. And he was a connector, man. The shoe game at this little gathering that just like happened, it was like second to none. It was, I felt like I was at a shoe convention. I was like, those are rare and those are rare. And those are sh- that, that, the, the little kid wearing those things, those are $300 shoes. I, it was, it was amazing. It's amazing. A dude who just dripped with style and charisma and love. Henry Nowen writes about how we all die but not all of us die well. Somehow this young man, younger than I am, died well. And when you die well, you leave uh, like fruit behind. And on Friday, I got to witness the first fruits of Chris's legacy. From a bunch of people that I hadn't seen in 20 plus years many of whom I've had the opportunity to like share Jesus with. And some of them are still walking with Jesus to this day. And it was a gift then as much as it was a gift on Friday, getting to see them. It was interesting seeing the strong person in their life no longer be there and how they responded. And I, I can only begin to imagine the effect on the disciples of the sudden change that overcame Jesus in Gethsemane. Because up until the moment that he had been, up until this moment, he'd been in control. Planning and directing and teaching and guiding. And he'd always been ready with a word of action or or action. And now, as, as we say, he's falling apart. Warning them that they're going to collapse around him. They're all going to leave him. The scene is so intimate and frightening that that we feel almost embarrassed to be onlookers. Jesus' own horror and, and the disciples' sleepy dismay are just raw human emotion. Like when the great Greek philosopher Socrates went to his death, he was all calm and in control throughout the whole process. His followers, they're distraught, they're losing it, and they're in tears. But they remember his steady teaching right up to the end and his, his, his coolly iconic last words, but not even so with this Jesus. The story isn't a Greek-style heroic tale, and it's not this typical Jewish martyrdom. It's unique. But only if we enter into it. Which we can hardly do without fear and trembling on our own part. Well, we understand the human depth and hence the theological depths of the story. Mark writes this so brilliantly succinct. 
Because we have a central scene flanked by two outer ones. In the middle is Jesus in the garden, overcome with horror, praying for another way. Claiming the truth that he had already taught the disciples in chapter 10, verse 27, that all things are possible to God. And yet being told that there was no turning back. More than ever, the Psalms give him words to express his torment. This time coming out of Psalm verse 42, or chapter 42 and 43, both in verse 5. Why so heavy my soul? Why so disrupted within me? And he comes through a time of great struggle, a struggle so bad that the Dr. Luke writes that he sweat blood. Three times Jesus repeated a prayer for rescue, which if you've ever prayed and prayed and prayed and asked God for something and it hasn't happened. Friends, this Jesus gets it. Like, seriously, can we pause there for just a moment and linger uncomfortably there for a bit? Jesus knows what it's like not to have his prayers answered the way that he wants them to. Eventually, it seems that he hears from the one that he calls Abba, and the answer is no. Abba is the Aramaic word for father, and it's not simply a a children's word, but it carries this this intimate affection. I was on the top of Haleakala on Maui about a week ago with my family, and I heard this boy yelling for his father from the car, which was illegally parked, by the way. (laughs) Abba, Abba! And maybe he was telling him, like, hey, daddy, daddy, like, our car is illegally parked. Like, I don't know, we're not from here, but I know that you can't park here. I don't know what he, but he was trying to get his attention. The way that a child calls for their father, which begs the question, if Jesus heard a no from God, even after possibly the most heartfelt and perhaps passionate of prayers, Who's to say that we won't hear a no as well? And yet still be invited to come. If Jesus gets this too. And then we see him emerge, composed and in charge once more. Which if you've ever had a really good cry, you know the feeling. It's like you got out all that you needed to get out and now you're ready to go or at least you have the guts to face whatever you have to face, be it the day ahead or the trial before you or the season ahead. We get the sense that Jesus is back to his old self by the ironic words that he comically says to his disciples, carry on sleeping, get up and let's go. Like, how do you do that? It's like this slow burn from Jesus. Which you can only like really have a sense of humor when you've like done some work, right? Jesus had made peace with the Father. He's like, all right. Mark continues. Just as his, just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. 
Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you come at me with swords and clubs and capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts. You did not arrest me then. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled away naked, leaving his garment behind. Like, do you see it? Like on one side is the central of the central story is Mark in, in Mark is Jesus frightening conversation with the disciples saying, hey, you're all going to leave me. Jesus fully aware of the scriptural warnings, all of which he's kind of senses rushing together into this dense moment of fulfillment. He's shepherded his little flock from the time that he gathered them in Galilee until now. And now the good shepherd will be struck down. And for the first time, at least uh, the flock will run away to wherever they can hide. And perhaps these are some of the tears that Jesus was shedding in the garden. Tears knowing that he would be alone, that even Jesus doesn't want to be alone. That perhaps loneliness is the worst way to die. Even this, though, though it will reflect their cowardice and confusion is somehow part of the plan. We often say in our household that God wastes nothing. This is one of those real time moments where, where we see God not even waste the disciples' cowardice hearts. And abandonment. Because at the end of the day, Jesus must go it alone into the time of trouble. The great dark moment that is coming upon him. The disciples, they have no place there. But Peter, the rock, the impulse, as impulsive as ever, opening his mouth first and thinking afterwards. P.S. Like Peter could possibly be the spirit animal of all ADHD people. I'm convinced of that. My daughter, Brooklyn, certainly believes that. She's like, so when do you stop becoming impulsive? Is that like a, is there like an age? Do you expire? Do you reach a certain age? I'm like, it's just a, it's a gift that just keeps giving, friend. Just wait till I'm a grandfather. It is just going to like accelerate. And now Peter, dude, I feel for Peter. I so feel for Peter. Being that impulsive kid who's like, I, you make a choice and then you see it and you're immediately like, I'm, you know, I'm not a sociopath. There's like deep empathy there, right? So like, like Peter, I still, I think that Peter has incredibly empathetic dude. Like can, you make a choice and then you immediately see all the ramifications and your heart just sinks to the point. I feel deeply i can't imagine peter's going to be turned inside out by this whole process the triple prayer of jesus in the garden stands in stark contrast to the three times that peter denies even knowing jesus three times jesus places himself in the hands and the will of his father and three times peter 
Jesus' right-hand man will deny that he even knows him. Like, what must that have been like for Peter? Can you imagine denying what you have dedicated your whole life to? The scripture doesn't tell us. Scripture tells us that Judas ended his life, but I'm curious to how close to Peter was to just ending his life. He had a sword available. He already hacked off some dude's ear. Mark cleverly just like says like some bystander because he was like, look, dude, you're not acting like a disciple. So I'm not going to call you a disciple. You were like, you got congratulations. Kook of the day right here. Hacked off a dude's ear, like valiant effort. Totally get the passion, dude. Totally get the passion. I think it's Mark or no, it's Luke that like says like Jesus put it back on or something like that. Was that, I don't, I don't remember. Maybe it was John cause he's spiritual and does weird healing stuff like that, but mentions little details, but like, like dude, I, I'm, I wonder how close dude was to just like, I, I, I literally have nothing. I've, I've completely failed everything. I'm, I wonder how close he was. And then there's this other side of the central scene is Jesus betrayal and arrest. G- Judas had, has, has found the perfect place in the dark outside of the city, away from the crowds. The swords and the clubs are completely unnecessary. And they imply that Jesus is this kind of like revolutionary leader, a leader that he was completely opposed like to, to being like, despite many had hoped that he would be like that. Judas himself probably wanted that kind of Messiah. And the irony just kind of increases with every step of the way. One of the disciples, like I mentioned earlier, tries tries to fight. John does, in fact, identify him as Peter. but, But the others don't even identify who this dude is because his his actions are so unlike that of this nonviolent rabbi. In the same way, though, Mark has been talking in verses 48 and 49 about the crowd who has come to arrest Jesus. When in verse 40, he describes the disciples running away. He doesn't even call them disciples. He just said they all abandoned him. They're not behaving like disciples, so he refuses them the title. Now, finally, we have the young man who, like Joseph in Genesis chapter 39, verse 12, escapes by leaving his garment behind. N.T. Wright has this fascinating observation to say, it's often been suggested that this was Mark himself. The other gospels don't mention this incident, though it's impossible to prove it. It's quite reasonable guess. Whether or not that is so, the imagery is striking. Going back as far as Genesis chapter 3, like Adam and Eve, the disciples are metaphorically in this case, literally hiding their naked shame in the garden. Their disgrace is complete. You see, Gethsemane invites us to consider above all what it meant for Jesus to be in a unique sense, God's son. The very moment of greatest intimacy, the desperate prayer to Abba father is also the moment where hearing the answer, no, he is set on the course for the moment of God forsakenness on the cross. 
Yet until we have come to terms with this, we have not really begun to think what we mean when we say the Nicene Creed. Specifically when highlighting who Jesus is, as it's written, through him all things were made. For him and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit and he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. And for our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. The threefold scene invites us to stop and ponder once again where we ourselves belong. Are we like the disciples, full of bluster one moment and asleep the next? Confused and ashamed the next. Are we ready to betray Jesus if it suits our plans or if he fails to live up to our expectations? Or are we prepared to keep watch with him in the garden, sharing in his anguished prayer? No, we're not called to repeat this unique moment of suffering. He went through that alone on behalf of all of us. And had to. We had no place there. But as Christian writers from the very beginning, like Paul, have seen, it's part of normal Christian experience that we too should be prepared to agonize in prayer as we await our own complete redemption and that of all creation. Friends, we are called, and by, by we, I mean the church, we are called to live in the middle. In the middle of this great scene, surrounded by confusion and false loyalty and direct attacks and traitors' kisses, those who name the name of Christ must stand, must stay in the garden with him until the Father's will is done. How do we as believers stay in the tension and be aware of Christ's invitation to stay with him in the middle of the garden? Like, like how do we stay awake without passing judgment? Like where do the disciples get it wrong and, and how can we as the readers and future followers of Jesus learn from them. Now we can't rewind and trade places with the disciples on that painstaking night. And we don't have to because God has created us as individuals to walk different intimate paths with him in community. So without trying to give you any, like, here's what you do. Maybe it begins with a simple prayer. Lord, I want to run away. I want to go to sleep. Lord, help me stay awake. 
So would you help me stay? Because I know whatever you have next, it will be good. Friends, we need to believe that. It takes a wildly creative God to work in us so much so that we can see any ounce of good when our rabbi is literally losing it in the middle of the garden. And maybe for the very first time asking you of something, I've given you my life. I just need you to stay awake. So often in sermons, we end with some steps on, on where to go next and what to do now. And yet often what we need is to just train under the Holy Spirit and simply stay. So Lord, would you help us stay? Would you pray with me? God, just that. <laughs> Will you help us stay? Help us linger. Help us stay awake. May we train under you, Holy Spirit, to be resilient. I don't know exactly all of what the meaning behind all of your tears, Lord. I can only wonder. I don't know for sure, for sure, but man, the loneliness piece, you knew what was ahead. And that was terrifying. And you didn't want to do that. And you did it anyway. Thank you for showing us, God, that, that, that we can be scared and still take steps of faith. Thank you, Jesus, for never inviting us into anything that you haven't already done. <laughs> you're, so, you're so kind. Thank you, God, for not being like when you lost a friend, you weren't just like, mm-hmm. Tone cold face. That's that. But you wept. Help us stay, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this production of Faith Community Church in Santa Cruz, California. To visit our complete archive of sermons, to learn more about FCC, or to view our live streaming services, please visit us online at santacruzfaith.org.